with hearts full of blessings. So God, we pour out our thanksgiving and praise. Shape our lives by your wisdom and grace so that we may live with generosity and gratitude for the gifts that you have entrusted to us. As we worship this day, remind us of your abundance. Strengthen our resolve to live as the community of faith that you want us to be. In Christ's name, amen. Our scripture today is from a letter written to the church in Colossae. Now, Colossae is one of those places a lot of people don't know where it is. And, uh, in fact, my children ask if uh, that's where the Khaleesi lived. But, but Colossae was one of the three towns in the valley of the river Lycus, about 100 miles from Ephesus. I have a map here I can show you later, and some of you already have seen, so you can see where that was. Well, just as Chapel Hill and Durham are much closer to each other than to Raleigh in our North Carolina Research Triangle, two of these towns were fairly close, about six miles apart, on one side or the other of the Lycus River. One was called Laodicea. That was a well-known government and banking center. And then the other town close by was Hierapolis. Well, they had a mineral springs and a spa, so that was well known as a place to, kind of place to vacation or relax, I guess. Well, like I say, in some ways, it was like the triangle cities of Raleigh, Durham, and Chapel Hill. Two cities close, and third, not so close. Um, I've read that Colossae was an insignificant market town then, and today, there's not even a stone to show where it once stood. Now, Colossae is an, an appropriate town for us to consider today, you know, in the week before Thanksgiving, because it was located in what we now call Turkey. <laughs> well, the Apostle Paul did not start the Church of Colossae, and he never visited there. But he wrote this church to warn them and to remind them, to warn them of several things and to remind them that Jesus is king. First, he warned them of, because they had gotten into astrology big time. Now, nowadays, we think of that kind of as a hobby thing, although there have been some folks go off on the deep end with astrology. Secondly, he warned them about syncretism, which is just a fancy word for kind of making a mashup of several different religions. In the second chapter, he writes, See to it, nobody enslaves you with philosophy and foolish deception which conform to human traditions and the way the world thinks and acts rather than Christ. All the fullness of the deity lives in Christ's body, and you have been filled by him who is the head of every rule and authority. In other words, Christ is all-sufficient. Christ is all you need. Well, the third thing he warned them about was against a view called Gnosticism. If I think about Gnosticism very much, I'll get a headache. And if I talk about it much, you will too. <laughs> but basically, basically, the Gnostics tried to explain the existence of sin and evil in the world by saying, well, that matter is bad and God wouldn't have anything to do with matter. And so uh, one thing they said, Jesus didn't have a real body, it just looked like it. Another uh, 
problem was that this kind of Gnosticism reasoning led to two bad choices. One was called asceticism, that is, denying the body its needs and observing. They had a bunch of rules about things you couldn't touch and couldn't taste and don't do this and so on. The other bad choice was to say that, well, because the body makes no difference at all, do anything you want to. Well, that led to problems too. The other belief of the Gnostics was that to get back to God, there's a little spark of God in you, and to get back to God, you needed passwords and really, and other special knowledge. So that meant salvation was only for the special few, the elite. But at the end of uh, that first chapter in Colossians, we read, we warn and teach every person with all wisdom. The gospel of Jesus Christ is open to everyone. You don't have to have special passwords or secret knowledge. Now the letter to the church at Colossae begins by naming it as coming from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy. So when we start reading our text today and it says we, Paul's not using the royal we, but talking about both him and Timothy. Listen now for the word of God. Since the day we heard about you, we haven't stopped praying for you and asking for you to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and with all wisdom and spiritual understanding. We're praying this so that you can live lives that are worthy of the Lord and pleasing to him in every way by producing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God by being strengthened through his glorious might so that you can endure everything and have patience and by giving thanks with joy to the Father. He made it so that you could take part in the inheritance and light granted to God's holy people. He rescued us from the control of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. He set us free through the Son and forgave our sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the one who is first over all creation because all things were created by him both in the heavens and on the earth, the things that are visible and the things that are invisible, whether they are thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He existed before all things, and all things are held together in him. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the one who is firstborn from among the dead, so that he might occupy the first place in everything. Because all the fullness of God was pleased to live in him, and he reconciled all things to himself through him, whether things on earth or in the heavens, he brought peace through the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Well, Lord, may the words of my mouth and may all of our thoughts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Who is your king? Today's sermon title asks a question in a way that many Americans would argue with. We don't have a king. <laughs> that was settled way back in the days of the American Revolution. 
Well, maybe in terms of politics it was, but not in terms of how we live. When our son Paul III was an, a high school freshman in ninth grade, taking first year Latin, in the fall that year he went to the Latin ball. It was a big deal. The freshmen, it turns out, the freshmen were slaves. The sophomores were citizens, the juniors were senators, and the seniors, ooh, the seniors, they were Roman gods and goddesses. You could pretty much tell their rank by their outfits from the freshmen wearing togas made from mama's bed sheets and a whole bunch of strategically placed safety pins <laughs> to the seniors in elaborate outfits, especially the girls who wore fancy flowing white gowns with their hair adorned with golden tiaras. It was an event to behold. Well, when Paul came home from the Latin ball that night, he told us that it had been his job to fetch food and drink for Cupid, the Roman god of love. Well, I sympathized with him and said, oh son, a slave to love. I have been there and done that. <laughs> well, many of us profess to be citizens who are, we're free agents, but we often act like we owe allegiance to, well, lots of things. Some are, some are addicts or slaves to alcohol or heroin or Oxycontin or whatever. Some are slaves to fashion. Some crave money and possessions, fame and status and so on. Never satisfied, always want more and more and then maybe just a little more. So why, why should we submit to Christ as a king? Well, our reading from the first chapter of Colossians tells us that Jesus Christ made it so that we could take part in the inheritance. That is, through Christ, God has rescued us from the control of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son. God set us free, forgave our sins. So in response to this rescue, this forgiveness, this freedom, what are we to do? Live lives that are worthy of the Lord, it says, pleasing to God in every way. And how, pray tell, might you do that, you ask? Well, I'm glad you asked. First, by producing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. Second, by being strengthened through God's glorious might so that we can endure everything and have patience. And if there's anything the world is short of these days, it seems to be patience. And third, by giving thanks with joy to the Father. Something that involves a lot more than a big turkey dinner and all the trimmings and some good football games and a long nap come Thursday. What joy every day. Well, the 15th through the 20th verses of this first chapter of Colossians, they're sometimes called a hymn. We don't really know if this poem was ever sung, but we do know that it's rich in profound phrases about Christ. First it says that the sun is the image of the invisible God. In the original Greek, that word image that's translated image was icon. So don't think of it as a two-dimensional picture kind of image. Now humans cannot see God, 
But Jesus was and is the living icon or image of God. Then Jesus is said to be the one who's first over all creation and the one who is firstborn among the dead so that he might occupy first place in everything. So Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. All things were created through him and for him. And the last verse we read, he reconciled all things to himself through him, things on earth or in heavens. You see, Jesus has brought peace through the blood of the cross. So who is your king? Since September, here we've been studying what the Bible says, not about what disciples believe, but what disciples do. We started, you may remember, by looking at taking faith seriously and acknowledging that in terms of being a disciple, you can do it but it'll cost you. We said that disciples seek people for Christ and church, that disciples resist greed and practice generosity. And then we looked at that letter from the prophet Jeremiah who wrote to God's people in exile and concluded that disciples make the best of Babylon of the times when we feel like strangers in a strange land. Considering the plight of the poor, suffering, miserable, Job. We said disciples wrestle with God. That there are lots of times we have questions and that, that engaging with God is not just keep your questions to yourself, but talking openly with God about those. And last week we said that disciples take faith public. And we saw how the prophet Isaiah shows us how many current issues also kingdom issues. And today we considered an important letter to an unimportant place and how it shows that as disciples following Jesus Christ, we must give him our allegiance, must acknowledge him as king. I know, I know, most of us like to think of ourselves as independent, self-sufficient, but as Christians, as people who seek to follow Jesus Christ, we have to do what that fellow I quoted before, Martin Thielen, calls, we have to return to the very heart of what it means to be a disciple. That is, to follow. Following, by definition, means not being first, not necessarily being the leader, not being in charge. Thielen wrote about a, a teacher that, who was cleaning up her house and she found a cross. Well, something perhaps like this cross that Sarah made for me one time in, in a pottery class. Well, she laid it on her desk, and later she sat down at her desk to do some work, so she moved that cross over to Helen Moore working room and sat it on, on top of her checkbook and her bills, which prompted her to think about how her faith impacts her finances. If her money was under the cross of Jesus, what would she buy or not buy or what would she give away? She moved the cross another time down to a pile of papers that she needed to grade. She, remember, she was a teacher. And she thought, what if my job, what if my job were under the cross of Jesus? How would I treat my students or their parents or my colleagues? 
differently. And later that cross ended up on a pile of photos of friends and family, and you just know that she got to wondering, how should her faith influence her relationships? For her, for you, for me. The question is, if I'm really a disciple of Jesus Christ, how does the cross affect your life, my life? And if, like some of us, you wear a cross over your heart, how does that cross, how does Jesus affect your heart? So I ask you again, who's your king? Thanks be to God. Fellow disciples, followers, be filled with the knowledge of God's will with all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that you can live lives that are worthy of the Lord and pleasing to him in every way. By producing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God, by being strengthened through his glorious might so that you might endure everything and have patience. By, and by giving thanks with joy to the Father. Now may the love of God uphold you, the light of Christ guide you, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit fill you with joy. Now and forever. Amen.